Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that for the power that is in the word of God that you have given us. Father, I thank you for the faithful service and study of this man of God, Cameron. I pray for a fresh anointing, a fresh spirit over him to deliver your message, your word, directly into our hearts and souls. Father, we thank you for his service. We thank you for the uh, many years that he has put into this. Father, we bless him and we thank him. Thank you for him. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good. My name is Cameron. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at Conduit. And uh, we are in the Gospel of Mark. It's where we've been for the last, uh, I think, five weeks, four weeks, five weeks. This is our fifth week. And um, we're going to continue in there. So without, uh, without beating around the bush any further, I'm going to have you take out your Bibles and open them to Mark chapter 7. If you don't have a copy... Uh, your own copy of the Bible. There should be one in the um, somewhere in the row that you're sitting in, or in the the um, underneath the seat in front of you. And if you don't have your own personal copy of the Bible, one that you take home and read every day or whatever, um, and you need one or want one, take the one that's sitting in front of you. Take it home. It's for you. Um, Put your name in it, study from it, allow the Lord to speak to you through it. Uh, obviously, you can also uh, find uh, the Bible on your phone, and we'll have the Scripture up here for us as well. Um, we're going to be in Mark chapter 7, so you can kind of find that and put your finger in it. Um, but one of, the, one, of, one of the things that Jesus, He speaks most passionately about throughout the Gospels is, uh, He kind of said both implicitly and explicitly, he talks about the importance of having uh, our, our inner life and our outer life coming into alignment with one another. Meaning, not that our, our inner spiritual disposition is going this way, but, the, but that our outer life, the, the fruit of what's happening inside of us, looks like it's going this way. That, that Jesus talks about the importance, implicitly and explicitly, about having um, the content of our lives match the conduct of our character. Right? He wants them here, going in the same direction, rather than going here. And um, if, you've, uh, if, you've ever, if you've ever been, if you've ever been called this term, you know, uh, at least as a person who's seeking to follow Jesus, how biting and hurtful of a term it can be is to be called, be called the word uh, hypocrite. Right? There's like, th- that's a really deepful or, or deeply hurtful thing um, to be leveled against you as a follower of Jesus. Um, uh, so, the, the, term, the term hypocrite here, which we're going to talk a little bit uh, about today, um, I don't want to delve too much into it, uh, but the term hypocrite is, is meant to kind of, when someone calls you a hypocrite, they're meaning to denote kind of um, essentially someone who maybe says one thing and does another, right? They said this, but they do this. You are a hypocrite. You said this thing over here, but I see you doing this thing 
over here. And while that is maybe a part of what makes up the definition of, of, of hypocrisy or what a hypocrite is, it really, um, that, that kind of definition really just speaks to the, to the surface level of what's going on, what we can see in a person, right? We can see and hear the things that they say, and we can see and hear the things that they are, uh, the things that they do, and we see that they're maybe not aligned with one another, and so we call them a hypocrite, but we're, we're really just being, we're really just seeing what is kind of on the surface of life there. But the word hypocrite actually has a much more, um, a much, a much deeper, uh, a much more, a much deeper meaning and, and hits at a much deeper level to our souls. Hypocrite means, uh, essentially someone who the actual definition of the Greek word is someone who wears a mask. The word hypocrite comes from the theater, really. The hypocrite was a, was a character in a lot of um, ancient plays and dramas. And it was a person who everyone in the crowd knew who they really were. But in certain scenes, they would wear a mask and they would trick the others in the play into knowing who they actually were, what their motives were about, what the content of their heart was. It was a it me it it was meant to denote someone who wears a mask, someone whose true identity is hidden behind a false identity that they portray to the world. And so when we see the word hypocrite in scripture, and maybe we're accused of being a hypocrite from time to time, understand that that word actually has a very deep, deep, deep meaning of a, of falsely portraying not just the things that we do and the things that we say, but falsely portraying who we are at our very core, our, our identity. We are masking who we actually and really and truly are from the world around us. Now, reading the Gospels, you should be able to see that Jesus' most harsh words, his most harsh words are for people, typically those who are either religious leaders or are high up in the religious life of Judaism. His most harsh words are for people who hide behind a mask of righteousness, piety, and holiness, but whose hearts are dark, unloving, and have been unsurrendered to the Father. If you ever want to see Jesus have what seems to be a very straightforward, harsh, brash, honest to the core, um, Ad, admonition type of um, type of speech. It's almost always towards those who, on the outside, or are portraying a mask or facade of holiness, righteousness, and piety, but who, on the inside, their hearts are full of darkness, unloving attitudes, words, and thoughts, and um, and unloving towards others. Uh, and so. We're, in fact, if you look at kind of the Gospels, and I was just thinking about this this morning, you know, as I was getting ready, because, you know, you have all your best ideas in life 
when you're brushing your teeth and combing your hair and shaving or you're getting, you know, like, you know, all of the imaginary arguments that you win in the shower, right? If I ever got into an argument in a shower, you guys are all, I'm going to win every single one of them, right? <laughs> we, we get all of our best ideas there. But as I was thinking about this this morning and I was thinking about this, the content of the Gospels and the difference between the people that Jesus spoke really harshly to in the Gospels and the, and the difference between those he spoke really compassionately to in the Gospels, you see that there is, that Jesus has like the gentleness of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus, the mercy of Jesus is like, is like a magnet to the people who are eyes wide open about the brokenness of their lives. They know all their faults. They know all their brokenness. They know all their sin. They are living, they are living true to the content of their heart. And they come to Jesus and they fall before him and they say, teacher, master, Lord, savior, savior, rabbi, heal, heal us. Have mercy on me. Touch me and I will be clean. Teach me the way to eternal life. Those who come to Jesus with humility, the scripture over and over and over and over again says that Jesus saw them and had compassion on them. And then his, his um, attitude towards them there then explicitly shows just his gentleness with them, his care for them, his healing of them. But it's those that come into a situation and say, Jesus, um, you're not following that law and you're not doing this. Jesus, why are you and your disciples eating with that person? I can't believe that you would touch the person that was diseased. Why are you, why are your um, disciples eating on this or picking heads of grain on the Sabbath? So all of these, all of the people who are, are, are coming harshly against Jesus and judging those around them for what they're doing is the is where Jesus has the harshest words for them. We're going to see a little bit of that this morning um, in our passage of Scripture from Mark chapter 7. So let's read in Mark chapter 7 starting in verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless, they're, unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions 
of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever curses his father and mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father and mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is Corban, that is, a gift devoted to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father and mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. And after he left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked them. Oh, geez. Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then out of his body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods to be clean. He went on, What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All of these evil come from inside and make a man unclean. So what is happening here in the story? Well, the Pharisees see uh, that the disciples of Jesus are eating food with what they describe as unwashed or unclean hands. Now, this wasn't a, they weren't looking at the disciples' hands and saying, hey guys, you know, you got some dirt underneath your fingernails. Uh, you see there's kind of like some grime, you know, in the cracks and crevices in between each finger and your thumb. It may be wise because we don't want you to get sick, right? We don't want germs inside of your body if you go and uh, wash your hands a little bit. The Pharisees were not speaking to Jesus about the condition of the disciples' hands because they were worried about their personal hygiene or the cleanliness by which they ate the food that they were having. They were talking uh, about a deeper sense of cleanliness that would, that would leave a person inwardly or spiritually defiled if they didn't go through a certain set of rituals and traditions to ceremonially wash their hands and wash their bodies before they took things into their, before they took food into their body. See, what was going on at this period of Judaism in a period of time where um, there was a, a, a very rigorous hierarchy of um, kind of the religious function of Judaism with Pharisees and Sadducees and chief priests and elders and scribes and rabbis who kind of had a top-down approach to the Jewish faith and to the Jewish life. 
the Jews had something, they still have it, um, that they often relied on something called um, the Mishnah. I have it up here so you know what I'm actually saying. The Mishnah, to guide parts of their religious life when they felt like uh, the law itself was not clear and did not have much information on a particular law or practice or religious observance. So the Mishnah was the, the, the written traditions, interpretation, and commentaries of Jewish elders and teachers that had been passed on orally um, throughout past generations. So it existed as kind of like a um, companion guide to the Torah or their religious scriptures that helped the Jews determine and decide how they were going to practically live out the law of faith and the, the culture of Judaism. And it was written by it was written by rabbis, it was written by scribes, it was written by elders, kind of categorizing and cataloging the vast oral tradition that existed within Jewish life. It would look maybe something similar to a biblical commentary that we have today, but with a little bit more um, a little bit more punch to what it demanded of people rather than just offering up, well, this law could mean this, and we probably should uh, we probably should um, uh, abide by it in this certain way. The Mishnah was a little bit more, this is the tradition of the elders. Therefore, this is what we must follow. And so it was often called the traditions for shorthand. So what was the tradition here that existed within this ancient Jewish text that though the Pharisees who were talking to Jesus in this moment were really upset that, the, that Jesus and his disciples were breaking or not following. What was the oral tradition that was passed on through them that Jesus' disciples were breaking? What was happening is that the, the Pharisees were not witnessing Jesus' disciples going through a rigorous and ceremonial washing that cleansed them from the religious defilement that they would have received from being out in public around non practicing Jews or Gentiles. So they went to the market. They got food. They were around people who did not follow the faith or who were not like them or who were not part of the Jewish, uh, the Jewish nation or culture. And if they touched a table that a Gentile touched, right? Or if they brushed up along, some, along someone who was not following the Torah. Or if they had even a conversation, a physical interaction with someone that was not a practicing Jew or a Gentile, then it's not just like they got germs on their hands, right? It's that the, it's that the extreme nature of their practice led them to believe that they were now inwardly and spiritually dirty and defiled because they had talked to this ugly sinner over here. Right? And in order to continue in a uh, rigorous and pious practice of their faith, they now needed to go through this 
somewhat complicated ritual and ceremonial cleansing on the outside of their body so that somehow the apparent inward spiritual defilement that they had received was washed away and they could go, they could walk now again in faithfulness to God and in faithfulness to Torah. The Pharisees were absolutely incensed that the disciples could go on eating without washing, seemingly not caring at all about how dirty spiritually they were becoming in the process. Do you guys have any idea how spiritually defiled you now are because you touched something that a Gentile could touch? How could they possibly go on eating without even considering how significantly unclean it was making them spiritually? This is essentially the the basic rhetorical question that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law leveled to Jesus in uh, verse 6 or in our, um, in our, um, in our uh, I think it's verse 5 actually. Yeah, verse 5. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the traditions of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? They were pushing this question upon Jesus. Hey, don't you care about this? Don't you care about how spiritually unclean they are? Don't they care at all? Why don't your, why don't your disciples follow these traditions? They are eating with unclean hands. It's important that you, we, we see not just what the Pharisees are saying, but we see the implications that lie past it and beyond it and underneath what they're saying as well. What is the implication that comes along with it? Hey, Jesus, if this is who your disciples are, then obviously we know what you're all about as well. If they don't respect the traditions and you don't make them respect the traditions, and they are obviously spiritually unclean and now defiled because of their practices, what does that make you, Jesus? Right? It was calling into question the authority of Jesus himself, the understanding, the understanding that Jesus had about religious life and religious practice. Now, not so, I mean, we should... Not so coincidentally, that's the last time that we hear the Pharisees talk in this particular passage of Scripture because now Jesus takes over in response, right? In response to these both, both explicit and implicit um, judgments on their spiritual defilement and their spiritual cleanliness here. Um, and like we said, Jesus really does not, in situations like this, it's really not like seeker-sensitive Jesus, you know, make sure you, don't, make sure you don't say anything that scares anyone away from the truth, right? Um, uh, be super gentle and merciful and kind in all situations. Jesus goes right for it, right? Right for the jugular in this situation. The Pharisees had their turn in the story, and the rest is filled with Jesus' response and his teaching. In verse 6, Jesus replied, 
Isaiah the prophet was right. He was correct when he prophesied about you hypocrites. And then he called on his understanding and his knowledge of the prophet, um, the prophet Isaiah. And I think it's Isaiah chapter 29 here. Yeah, chapter 29. And he quotes from the prophet Isaiah and he says this. He said, Isaiah 29, 13 said this. And it's almost like Isaiah the prophet was prophesying about you, Pharisees, you hypocrites. These people, they honor me with their lips. Everything that you see coming out is, oh, we just want people to be spiritually clean. We don't want anyone to be defiled. We want people to be in right relationship with God. We're just doing this out of love for them, right? We're saying these things to them. We're demanding these things for them because we love them. That's what's coming out of their lips, right? And we want them to be in right relationship with God. But their hearts are far from me. See, the interesting thing about the way that Jesus, the, the, the ability of Jesus to have commentary on situations is that while you and I may be able to fool each other between the misalignment of our words and our hearts, that Jesus is not fooled even a little bit, right? Every word that comes from our heart and out of our mouth is judged in alignment with the actual content of our heart and the conduct of our character. And so while these Pharisees, these men, were saying, hey, they, Jesus is saying, they honor me with their lips, but I know the content of their heart, and their hearts are far, far from me. And these next few things that Jesus says are extraordinarily heavy if we if we carry them with them in their in the both in, in what they implicitly mean into our into our life, right? Both for the Pharisees, but our own application as well. It's like this. They they worship me in vain. What's it mean to do something in vain? Produces zero fruit. You're wasting your energy. You're wasting your time. You're wasting your words. You're wasting your emotions. You're wasting your thoughts. Everything is a waste. It's all in vain. Your worship is in vain. Why? Because their teachings are but rules taught by men. Listen, if there is any prophetic word to the church this morning, it's this next verse, verse 8. Because Jesus says to the Pharisees, you have let go of the commands of God and you are holding on to the traditions of men. This is what he levels ultimately to the Pharisees. That they have, in their pursuit of protecting the tradition of the elders, which existed as a mere commentary on the Word of God, that they have actually let go of the Word of God in order to pick up the traditions of men. And now they were standing firm, not uh, uh, like deciding to die on the hill of their man-made traditions all while trampling all over the commands 
and the Word of God. They have let go of the commands of God so that they can hold on to the traditions of men. Church, may we never be a people. May we never be a place. May we never be disciples who cling so tightly to the traditions of men that we have no ability to hold on to the commands of God. We drop all tradition, all preference, all opinion to pick up and hold on to the commands of the Lord. There is nothing that we will hold on to so tightly that it never hits the ground other than the commands of the Lord, period. Methods change, preferences change, right? Strategies change. The word of the Lord stands forever. And we will continue to hold on to it, right? Um, so an interesting thing that Jesus does here is he doesn't just he doesn't just pronounce essentially what the reality of the situation is. Because that's that he, he has done that, right? Your hearts are not aligned. You say something with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. You worship me in vain, right? Uh, you worship me in vain. Your teachings are rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God so you can hold on to the traditions of men. And then Jesus says, let me give you an example. Let me give you an example. Just so you don't think that I'm making just this generalized, really, really biased judgment against you, let me give you an example of one of the ways in which you are holding on to the tradition of men but ignoring the commands of God. And he talks about this funny thing. You may or may not have ever heard, had anyone explain it to you. Um, something called Corbin. Heard about this? Anyone... Ever know, you know what Corbin is? You understand what Corbin is? All right. We're going to talk a little bit about, or briefly about what Corbin is because it's an example, right? He gives this Corbin example. He says, um, you have a fine, verse 9, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death, Right? So what he's saying here, first off, is he's describing what the commands of God are. The commands of God are to honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses your father or mother should be put to death, right? Sorry, Dad. You know, honor your father and mother. Anyone who curses your father or mother should be put to death. Commands of God. Jesus says that's what Moses said, right? That was the totality of the law. In, in, uh, as it pertained to your father and mother. Verse 11. But you say that if a man says to his father and mother, whatever help you might have otherwise received from me is Corbin. I'm, I'm allocating it as Corbin. So, what the tradition of the elders, what the man-made tradition of the elders allowed is for a certain part of the resources or wealth of 
the me as the child, right? To be essentially tax sheltered in the temple so that I, I was not responsible to then use those resources to care for my parents in their old age. All right? So that they, they had allowed for people to take something that was a responsibility do the commands of God and instead shelter it over here in the life of the temple, right? Um, and, and avoid the responsibility of the command to honor your father and mother in their old age. That gift or that sheltering, I'm using, that's my term, not the Bible's term, that sheltering of that money was called Corbin. Whatever help I was going to have to give to you, mom and dad, I'm sorry, but all those resources are actually just Corbin. They've been allocated to the, um, they've been allocated to the temple. Um, so whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is Corbin. That is a, diff, a gift devoted to God. Verse 12, then you no longer let him do anything for his father and mother. Thus, Jesus says in verse 13, you nullify the word of God by your own tradition that you have handed down. Meaning you have your own traditions now that stand in, that stand in opposition and nullification of the commands of God. It says you, you willfully do this and encourage others to do it as well. And what's worse, he says at the end of verse 13, and you do many things like that. So it's not like Jesus just had a problem with Corbin, right? Like he was just picking one thing and man, he was going to whip that hobby horse until they finally got it and did away with it, right? What Jesus was doing was saying, I know your heart and how it exists in many things. This is just one example. You've built a whole tradition that nullifies the word of God. Now, I think that this, um, it should make us ask some important questions. Um, like, should we be against tradition? Like as followers of Jesus, right? I'm, I'm taking, I'm taking the, the example of Mark chapter 7, and I'm, you know, we're working with it to create maybe some, some practical, contemporary, reflective questions, right? About our own, the, our own way of following Jesus and living together in community as those who follow Jesus together and the, the life of the church and um, our, uh, our own mission and vision and the things that we do together. Like, what, what, like what, should, what should our relationship with tradition be? Because I know a lot of you are probably saying, well, one of the reasons that we come to Conduit is because it's not like a traditional church. Uh, 
And listen, I get why you say that, right? But, but don't be confused. We have our own traditions. Just because we're not traditional in the way that other churches are or how you think about the word tradition doesn't mean we're not traditional. It just means that our traditions are a little bit different. And, and they are really no less sacred to our preferences and opinions about church than someone who goes to a fundamentalist Baptist or a, um, a Catholic church or an Episcopal church or a Lutheran church or a Methodist church. We, we, we hold on to our own traditions very tightly as well. And you, you, know, you know why I know that? Because you keep coming back. Because if it was, a, if, if it was a offensive to your sensibilities... You, you probably wouldn't be here because we, we gravitate towards the places where we, where we find like some, some grounding or some common ground. And sometimes, yes, we put up with things that we don't prefer, right? In order to be in community with others or to, or to practice or enjoy the fellowship of other things that we do together. I get that. I'm not saying that all of you are like 100% on board with everything that we do and all the ways that we do it and all of that. But suffice it to say, just because we're not traditional, like we use the word now, doesn't mean that we don't have traditions. We do. We have ways that we do things. We have ways that we talk about things. We have certain we have certain rhythms of our family life here, of our community. We have traditions. We have things that maybe, we, even the way that we practice those traditions, we have things that we do that aren't explicitly biblical but have become part of our Christian worship together. Think about things like, as some really simple examples, think about things like, um, how about the practice of Advent? The Advent wreath and the Advent candles, Right? the Christmas trees, right? The Christmas decorations. How about the practice even of Lent? Things that have become a traditional aspect of Christian worship over centuries and millennia, but are, but are, but are, not, but are not commanded of us in the word of God. They're not, they're not, they're not found explicitly within scripture, but there are, they are things that we have adopted as part of our Christian tradition. And some of us may hold very tightly to those types of traditions. Some of us may hold very loosely. Some of you might not care at all, and that's fine. But the question is, should we be against tradition in order to hedge ourselves or protect ourselves from a pharisaical, hypocritical attitude that we see here, like Jesus talking against in Mark chapter 7? Now, my opinion on this issue is no, we shouldn't, right? Is that we, we, we shouldn't be against tradition because that's not even what I think the point of Jesus' words here are. The point was not um, that, the point for Jesus here was not that all tradition must go away. I think it would be a mistake to assume that Jesus was anti-tradition. Jesus was against the use of tradition to avoid the following of God's commands. No matter how righteous the tradition seemed. For instance, not many people were obviously questioning whether or not it was a righteous decision 
to take your resources and devote them to the temple. Right? No one was saying like, how dare they give their resources to the temple? How could they be so unrighteous? Because who's going to say that? Right? Not many people. Except Jesus, who was like, no, you're using your tradition to wall you off from responsibility towards obedience of God's commands. So any tradition that separates you from your ability to pursue holiness through obedience to the commands of God, yes, must absolutely be torn down and thrown into the fire. No matter how righteous and good and preferential you think that thing might be, if it's creating a wall of disobedience between you and the Lord, it must, must go away with. You see, the marker for Jesus and all of Scripture regarding tradition was that its use should be for expanding our capacity to love God and others. Does this tradition produce in me an overwhelming love of God and overwhelming love of others? How do we know if the religious traditions habits, preferences, opinions that we have and that we hold today are healthy or not spiritually? Let me ask some questions like this. Is this tradition that I'm holding so tightly to that I must have as a part of my spiritual or Christian experience, are they making me love God more? Are they making me love others more? Do I get angry and bitter with others when they don't align with my understanding or practice of traditions and religious preferences? Does it create anger and bitterness in me when someone doesn't like the traditions that I like or want to practice the things that I want to practice? Or am I able to hold them in an environment of grace and understanding, believing that the traditions of men are not the same things as the commands of God. Are my traditions developing in me a deep hunger for God's presence in my life? Is this thing, is this tradition, right? Is it developing in me? this hunger, this thirst, this deep desire for the abiding presence of Jesus Christ to be in me? Does my practice of faith keep me connected with Jesus in a life-giving relationship? Because listen, if it is not making you more loving, it is not making you more holy. If it is not making you more loving, it is not making you more holy. I was thinking about maybe some of the reasons that we choose oftentimes, as the, as the Pharisees obviously did here, 
why we choose man-made tradition over the commands of God. I wouldn't say that these are necessarily like chapter and verse um, Why do we choose reasons? Okay, I think I have two reasons here. Two reasons that we choose man-made traditions over the commands of God. Okay, number one. We choose tradition because it's generally easier and costs us less personally and spiritually. It's been my, uh, it's been my experience that we must be very, we must beware. We must be very, very careful of spiritual practices that cost us very little, but promise big returns on your maturity. Be, be aware, right? Be aware of, of spiritual practices or traditions that you're holding tightly onto because they create so much spiritual maturity for me but they cost you very little. They don't cost you of your time. They don't cost you of your resources. They don't cost you of your pride. They don't cost you your sin. They don't cost you anything. It's all gravy. Be very aware of the things that um, promise us lots, but costs us little. Because those things generally keep us in a spiritual busybody posture, giving us the illusion that we are doing something to increase our spiritual maturity, all the while we have not given up a single part of the lordship of our own souls to him. This goes into the second one. Reasons that we choose man-made tradition over the commands of God is this. It, I think this, this sentiment takes us all the way back into the garden, right? Is that this. We often choose man-made tradition over the commands of God because it allows us to be in control of our relationship with God rather than sitting under His Lordship. We choose to practice things or do things in certain ways because it allows us, a, it allows us more control over our spiritual life and our relationship with God rather than surrendering our pride, surrendering our sin, surrendering our intellect to sit under and rely on the Lordship of Jesus to guide us. If there's anything that we can learn from, uh, from at least the last couple verses of Mark chapter 7 here that we read, is that we must be incredibly um, aware of our tendency to over-trust our own hearts rather than fully surrendering to the wisdom of Scripture. It's really, really common today to say, hey, you just have to live your truth. Trust your heart. Um, no, do not trust your heart and do not live your own truth, right? Uh, the heart is deceitfully and totally wicked, the Word of God says. That, that we cannot 
We cannot just live our own truth, right? Because even as Jesus says, it's out of the content of men's heart that all evil comes from. Right? Uh, Trusting your heart, living your own truth, is a recipe for spiritual disaster. And you can take that foundational statement and inject it into any cultural issue right now, and that's what I mean. Living your own truth, following your own heart, is a very bad idea. We don't follow our own heart. We follow Jesus. We, we, We rely on Jesus. We, we trust on Jesus. It, we, are, we are not manufacturing our own ethical or moral righteousness that makes us just a little bit more good today than we were yesterday. No, no. Every bit of righteousness and good that we have in us is the righteousness and goodness of Jesus Christ that is ours by faith present in us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Take the Holy Spirit away from Cameron Linehart, right? And there is nothing good there. Nothing. The heart is deceitfully wicked. And we, and we often set up scaffoldings of spiritual tradition in our lives, right? Because it gives us the illusion of doing something righteous and good, but it is a facade and a deceitful endeavor to allow us to hang on to control of our lives without fully surrendering ourselves to the Lord. If we look at verse 14 here, Jesus goes back in verse 14 to the original issue at hand. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by, um, by going into him. Now, he's using the word unclean, obviously, in a spiritual sense, right? Because that's the way that the Pharisees were using it. Nothing outside of a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it's that what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. The disciples get him alone. They say, hey, uh, Jesus, we're kind of like confused about this again. Like, we don't get it. Like, and Jesus, I don't know if it's, I'm not really sure. I didn't study the Greek of this word or anything like that. I don't know if Jesus is actually this frustrated with him or not, but uh, with them or not. But he's like, guys, you are... Um, you're not the brightest crayons in the box. Okay. You're not the sharpest tools in the shed. Because he says, are you so dull? Right? Um, <laughs> it's candy and I... Oh, I want to know about that when I get to heaven, Lord. I want to see that replayed. Um, are you so dull? And then he describes, he, he explains it again, right? Don't you see, in verse 18, don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make them? And if we use the, 
if we expand the language here, don't you see that nothing that you eat can make you spiritually unclean? What you eat, what you eat does not go into your heart and affect your heart of sin. What you eat goes into your stomach and then out your body. Jesus is really clear, right? So it's like, like, like just get it straight here. What the Pharisees are trying to, what the tradition is trying to push into our lives as true is not true at all. Like our, the, the, the spiritual defilement inside of us does not come from the food that we eat, but from the content of the heart. What makes a person clean or unclean is what comes up out of them, not what goes down into them. And he goes on to say that this is what, that, that, uh, that it is what comes out of a person from the center of their heart that makes them unclean here at the end of the, um, the verse or the, uh, section, verses 20 through 23. Things like evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, Murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All of these things, all of these evil come from inside and make, an, uh, make a man uh, unclean. Now, this is not, uh, this is not surprising um, language in the Gospels. Jesus talks about it in other ways and in other forms. In fact, in the, in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 23, he talks about how the Pharisees are, um, one, of, one of the ways that he talks about them or describes them as whitewashed tombs. The outside of the tomb is whitewashed. It's beautiful. It looks perfect. The inside of the tomb is full of what you would expect to find in a tomb. Dead, rotting bones. Nothing good, nothing alive, right? He says the same thing about a cup. He says, what, what person takes a cup they're about to drink out, out of and washes the outside only? If you're going to wash any part of the cup, wash the inside of it, right? He's like, but, but these Pharisees, they, they're washing the outside of the cups. They're whitewashed Tombs. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Listen here. God, this is both an exhortive statement, but I want you to hear it as an invitation as well. God does not honor, value, or want the facade of your righteous ethical, or moral behavior. He does not want that. God is after your heart. Not in whatever condition that you hoped it would be. Not, in, not to mirror the condition that you're providing as the facade on the outside but your actual heart in whatever condition it is currently in now. Even if it is full of all of the sin that is described in the last three verses here. That is the heart that God desires. That is what he wants so that he may take that heart and rend it and heal it and redeem it and restore it. 
You do not have to keep the mask on. You don't have to keep the mask on. It may do you some good with people in this room, right? To continue to see you as a, man, aren't they, isn't he just a great guy? So faithful, so committed. Isn't she just, isn't she just such a godly woman, right? Meanwhile, the, on the inside, you're dying a thousand deaths, as people say that, because you know that the Lord sees here. You know what actually, you know what is real. Not what you've, descri- not what you've put forth is real, right? But what is actually real. See, it may do you some good to those of us in the room to keep your mask on, but it is doing nothing for you in the courts of heaven. There are no masks there. In fact, as Jesus quotes Isaiah, um, we, we return to this to be reminded that our worship of God is actually in vain when we honor him with our lips, but not with our hearts. It's like all of the religious practice, the the worship that we give to him, right? In vain. In vain. When 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 we are not aligned. Now, we're going to end with these um, with these a few a few distinctions here, okay? Because here's what I want you to hear. What I don't want you to hear is that if you are um, what if you are a follower of Jesus and you are earnestly seeking to live in the righteousness of Jesus that's in you, but you are continually you are continuing to struggle with sin, right? Like continuing to struggle with sin, yeah. Yeah, me too, right? All of us. That there is, that the Lord, that you would hear in this passage that the Lord is speaking judgment on you because you say you're following Jesus, but you continue to struggle with sin, right? Because there is a difference between the heart of the hypocrite as described in the gospel and the process of sanctification that the Holy Spirit works in you as you surrender yourself to the Lord and he time and time, minute by minute, moment by moment, day by day, begins to free you both from the power and penalty of sin that is in your life. Okay? Hypocrisy is not the same thing as sanctification. The Apostle Paul is an example excellent example of this. In fact, in the letter to the Romans, he comes right out and says, hey, look, guys, the very sin that I don't want to do is the thing that I keep on doing. And the things that I want to do, those are the things that are most difficult for me to do. Right? The Lord is continually to sanctify the sin in my life, right? So that I may live in obedience to him, right? And I am 
earnestly seeking that sanctifying process. Okay? There is a difference between someone who is living as a hypocrite and someone who is like, man, I am, I am trusting in the Lord to cleanse me of this sin so that I may walk in continued righteousness and obedience with him. But man, the things that I don't want to do, I keep on doing. And the things that I do want to do, I really struggle to do. Sanctification is the continual work of the Holy Spirit to make me more and more like Jesus every single day. It is the active work of the Holy Spirit to sanctify all the parts of me, to sanctify my thoughts, to sanctify my words, to sanctify the content of my heart, to sanctify my relationships, to sanctify my my relationship with people, my relationship with money, my relationship with sex, my relationship with substances. The the, the, The Lord is working in me, right, to burn out, cleanse out, flood out all sin so that every day, every moment, I am becoming more and more like Jesus. The Holy Spirit is moving me one step closer to Jesus, one step closer to Jesus, one step closer to Jesus so that the presence of Jesus in my life transforms who I am. In comparison, hypocrisy is the facade of righteousness with a heart that is actually having evil intentions, desires, and actions. Hypocrisy is a facade of righteousness. Sanctification, in comparison, is the awareness of my unrighteousness and surrender of my unrighteousness to Jesus to make, to make me more like him every moment. Hypocrisy is a facade of righteousness. Sanctification is a, I am eyes wide open about my unrighteousness, about all of my sin and how it grieves the heart of God. The question, kind of like the orienting question here is, are you eyes wide open about your sin and how it grieves the heart of God? Or are you openly grateful that you are not like all the other sinful people in the world? That's the difference between someone who is being actively sanctified and between someone who is living in a facade of righteousness. Man, I am glad I am not like all of those sinners. I got news for you. Okay? Uh, One more. Hypocrisy creates deafness to the Holy Spirit, speaking conviction of sin and creating transformation in your life. The Holy Spirit's like calling you to faith, calling you to obedience, calling you to righteousness, and you're like, la, 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 right? I don't want to hear it. I'm good. I'm not like them. I mean, isn't it good enough to not be like them? Sanctification, on the other hand, welcomes the Holy Spirit to take a two-by-four to the life of sin in my life. Search my heart, Lord. Know my wicked and evil ways and thoughts. Change everything in me. Lead me to life everlasting. 
Sanctification is an open door to the Holy Spirit to burn out every evil corner of my life, right? So that I may become more like him. Hypocrisy is like, ah, da, 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 da. nothing's wrong. Everything's fine. It's all fine, right? Meanwhile, life is just burning down around you. What if you find yourself in the place of more hypocrisy than sanctification this morning? I have good news for you, right? It's called the gospel. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that when sinners come to understand the depth of their sin and how it grieves the heart of God, that no matter where you are in the path of your relationship with God, that God offers you a place and a pathway to come home to him. Whether you've been living in a facade of righteousness or whether you've been living not in a facade of righteousness at all, but out and out like, man, I don't want nothing to do with the righteous life of Christ in me. I'm walking my own direction. I'm living my own truth. I'm following my own heart. No matter if you've been living in a facade of righteousness your whole life, or whether you've been living in complete unrighteousness your whole life, God offers you himself in the gospel of Jesus Christ that you can lay down the life of sin, that you can lay down the life of hypocrisy, and with open hearts and open eyes and open ears, you can say, yes, Lord, I am fully aware of how my sin has grieved your heart. And Lord, through Jesus Christ, I am asking that you would save me of my sin. Fill me with your Holy Spirit, and create a righteousness in me that is not my own, but that comes from Him and Him alone. Lord, I have been living in hypocrisy. I have been living with a mask on, and I no longer want to live on a pathway that leads me to death. I want to live on a pathway that leads me to life. Lord, please do it in me because I cannot do it myself. And if you find yourself this morning relating more with the heart of hypocrisy than the heart of sanctification, then you don't, you can take off the mask. You can take it off. And you can live in complete vulnerability to the Lord. He knows it already. And you can live in complete vulnerability to your brothers and sisters in Christ here who have shown themselves to be faithful and true in your life and who themselves are living in a perpetual state of vulnerability to the work of the Holy Spirit in them. If you would desire to take off the mask of hypocrisy this morning and to say, uh, Jesus, I no longer want to live I no longer want to live this facade of righteousness. I want to live with you fully, fully sanctifying my heart and life. That I'm going to, I'm going to offer it, we're going to offer it to you this morning. Not, not as a gift from us, right? But as a gift from God to allow you to understand the depth of his purpose and plan for your life and for the love that he has for you. 
going to invite the worship team to come back uh, to come back up. And I know that sometimes these things can be scary. And I know that sometimes you don't really you don't really know what to do or how to do it. But what I also know uh, this morning is that there that there are men and women in this room where the Holy Spirit is speaking to you right now, even in this moment, saying, take the mask off. It's time to take the mask off. It's time to lay it down. It's time to lay it down. And if that is you, if today you are hearing His voice to take off the mask and to trust Him for your life and righteousness rather than trusting in yourself. As we all stand and as the music starts to play, I want to invite you to come down and come forward. And if you come forward to the front of the sanctuary here, we are going to pray with you that you would receive the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, that you are empowered to take off the mask of hypocrisy and trust in Him for your life. And we want to surround you with a community that loves you and cares for you and will walk with you in the openness of your vulnerability with him so that you can experience new life with Jesus. As the music plays, we would invite you to come down. Let's stand this morning. Lord Jesus, that we would be people that experience zero incongruity between the content of our hearts and the expression of our lips. Lord, we thank you that you have not asked us to be perfect in conduct, in thought, in speech, in motives, in anything before we come to you. Lord, but that you welcome us in the brokenness of our position, in the desperation of our lives, in the darkness of our hearts, that you say, come to me, child. Let me put my hands on you and heal you. Let me touch you and give you new life. I am willing. Lord, thank you that you have not come to heal the healthy, but to heal the sick. For that is who we are. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would break down the hard crust of our unrighteous lives right now. That any obstacle of fear, Lord, that the enemy is working feverishly to set up right now, that you would tear it down, Lord that all those, Lord, that you have called by name this morning would respond by faith to your spirit. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of your word as it speaks truth to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. 
Be strengthened in spirit and heart. The Lord is with you, conduit. You are loved. Have a great week.